0: Welcome to Winner Take All. I'm Alex Mozed. And the first topic is about Plaid and Visa. This Visa transaction was called off by regulators. And as a result of that, uh, now the company has basically tripled in value. Investors are interested in Plaid at a $15 billion valuation. Visa had a $5.3 billion acquisition price. And the DOJ sued Visa in November. Visa's in plat, they're a platform company. They're actually one of the oldest uh platform companies in the index. As a result of that, they decided to terminate their merger uh earlier in January. You know, it's it's interesting why Visa decided to not, I guess, you know, fight this transaction as aggressively as uh, I feel like they could have, frankly. As a result of that, what you've seen and what you're seeing in the, uh, you know, in the IPO and in the tech markets is you're just seeing these, these tech valuations go berserk. Now, Visa is is a platform business. Plaid actually is more of a pipe. Uh, and if you want to know what Plaid is, is so think about them as that that connected pipe between banks and other financial institutions. And then they allow um, other software companies, app developers to build apps uh, that connect into these financial institutions, right? So you can, for example, um, if you are Coinbase, you can use Plaid to allow me to connect, you know, my bank, Bank America, Chase, whatever it is, and now you can, you know, suck in your money from your bank into Coinbase. That kind of—that's just one example, right? There's a myriad of examples of other, you know, fintech companies, or, or let's say, uh, you know, Intuit and Mint, their their product that helps you kind of keep track of your finances and um, all these kinds of things. So there's a lot of different products that say, "Hey, I want, you know, I need to get access to if I want to be able to give you." Um, Analysis or allow you to move money uh, or 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 all these different kinds of things. You need to get access to the bank account um, or another financial institution, right? Your account. So Plaid basically unlocks all of that. They're working with uh, the banks and the financial institutions, and then they're enabling you know the uh, the the Coinbase and and the Intuit mints of the world and all these different types of developers. uh, who are going to then integrate into Plaid. And the reason why they integrate into Plaid is then now Coinbase or Mint's user, that consumer user, can access you know, any of their banks through Plaid, right? And Plaid has all those backend integrations with all of the banks and, and makes it very easy through APIs and all that stuff for Coinbase, for Mint to do those integrations. It's more of like a B2B2C model then it is a development platform, right? Plaid doesn't actually have the relationship down to the end consumer, which would which would actually kind of complete the complete the cycle and kind of bring them that consumer-producer relationship. You could try and say that you know, well, you know, is a chase of Bank America? Are the banks technically producers, and um, you know, are the consumers the Coinbase and the mints of the world? And if you actually look at, you know, who is creating value on top of plat, it's really the Coinbase and Mint. And so they would really be the producers, if any case. Just the difference is that the consumer is, is actually the producer's customer, you know, and that's really that B2B to C model. Kind of like a firm. A firm also has that B2B to C model. Doesn't mean that the business is bad, doesn't mean that there's a problem with the business. I I it just understanding that it's it's not actually uh, a platform business you know we'll keep keep our eyes on plaid um i think visa probably could have fought this a little bit harder Uh, visa is a platform company they do have monopoly scale between visa mastercard and amex uh you know they they pretty much split the market discovers kind of in there you know these are some of the old school kind of payment platform businesses and it just it's just funny the d o j goes after this transaction meanwhile it's so soft on you know the the tech monopolies uh that that get much more publicity the famgas of the world um and uh i'm I'm sure the d o j is patting themselves on the back but you know, the real big fish here are the uh mega mega trillion dollar tech monopolies the famgas of the world and we really haven't seen much success in that arena another kind of contentious uh You know, Harry Waters here would be what Instacart's going through with unions. And what's interesting about this is there's another big tech company, much bigger than Instacart. Their last valuation was in the high teens of of value. Um, But the other the other big player I'm referencing is Google, who also had a union form in the past couple months. And what Instacart is doing here is basically firing everyone who (laughs) who voted to unionize employees were in the process of negotiating their first contract. When news of the layoffs hit these layoffs are totally discouraging for any gig workers who are trying to do something to make these jobs better. They said they were fighting for health insurance and vacation time in their initial contract. The uh, United food and commercial worker union said that the layoffs will impact nearly 2000 of the company's 10,000 grocery store workers. The news could have a chilling effect on the other on other organizing efforts by Instacart employees across the country. Company's leadership has already shown its hostility toward organizers running a union busting campaign that that included bringing in managers to the grocery store on Skokie to convince workers to vote against the union. They're basically just going to wind down their in-store operations at these retail locations that are a threat for unionization. Um, and this this really is interesting because Instacart was initially much more 1099. And that means contract labor for this. You know, if you think about Instacart, it actually has a few different functions, right? There's the picking and packing in the store. And then there's the delivery. I'm pretty sure the delivery is all 1099 or large, large majority 1099 uh, delivery, you know, contract labor like like uber and lyft instacart started to make the picking and packing w2 and so when uh this union is saying that um you know instacart has ten thousand groceries to our workers that's really the the labor force they're talking about and uh it's that picking and packing which actually if you rewind the clock all the way on instacart i think pretty much the whole thing you know from end to end from you know the picking and packing to the delivery was all 1099 then Instacart started to w2 the the um the, the workers in the grocery store as they saw how important and repetitive that picking and packing function is now because they've a bunch of w2 employees now it's possible to have union right if it's 1099 1099 in union right doesn't work um w2 in union okay now we're talking And, you know, if I was management at Instacart, I would be doing absolutely the same thing. This is a no brainer. If you are running a private business or frankly, just about, um, you know, any business, how can you run an organization where if someone is bad at their job, you can't fire them? So (laughs) if you can just perpetually do a horrible job and have sustenance, you know, it can't always be carrot. There's got to be some stick here. Okay. We got to live in reality here, gang. I would absolutely stamp out these unions a 1,000% if I was Instacart. Google, Sundar, I think he's kind of weak. Um, we're going to touch on him in a second. And um, he should have stamped out similarly the union inside of Google. More weakness on Sundar's part. Um, also not really surprised. And um, and then uh, got a delivery who has also been famous for stamping out un- unions is Walmart. All right. I mean, they will literally shut down entire stores if the store threatens to unionize. So you're basically seeing the same thing here. This is a, this is a a classic action reaction, okay? Uh, Newton's law here. So action: unionize. Reaction: shut down the store. Everyone loses their job. Boom. Okay. Um, the question is, and that's our next topic: Does action reaction? Does Newton's law? Does that, do those same shenanigans work or can they work for Google? What happened to Google in Australia? So Australia has said that Google needs to pay news publishers in the country, you know, a a portion of ad revenue. They need to pay these news publishers fees. And, you know, we have seen, and we've talked about on the show, we've had, tim kendall on as a guest we've you know we've talked about this topic um, from from a myriad of different directions in the sense that google and facebook have destroyed the news business model and the news while we're seeing just fake news everywhere while we're seeing the news publications have um, basically no regard for their own integrity is that they don't have a business, right? I mean, they're, they're literally lose money. And the only way that they can try to even break even or, or, or crunch out a small profit is if they play the game of Google and Facebook. And what's the game of Google and Facebook? Engagement. And you know what those algorithms really like at Google and Facebook? Fake news. Those algorithms love fake news. Those algorithms love that information that's really going to trigger people, get you all riled up, that gets shared, that gets comments, that gets engagement. And what does Google and Facebook do with engagement? They sell ads. That's the vicious cycle, gang. So Australia said, well, you know, we're going to force you to pay these publishers and start to disjoint um, that vicious cycle by giving the news publishers some ability to have some integrity, right? If they can know that, that they are not completely beholden even though the money would be coming from Google, but that money and the way it's paid out is decreed by the government as opposed to the all-knowing algorithm which loves engagement at all costs. Then maybe it's a little bit different story. Maybe these these media orgs would actually be able to have some journalistic standards once again. Hey, worth a shot, right? So what is Google saying? Well, we have this program. It's some kind of yeah joke of a program. Google said here in a statement, we have offered similar deals for news showcase in Australia, as in France and in Australia. In Australia it's not about the money. It's about being asked to pay for all links and snippets, which the EU copyright directive does not. Links and snippets are not the building blocks of free and open web. Sir Tim Berners-Lee and his submission agrees. You know, the difference with this showcase program that Google has is it allows them to, I think they're maybe paying out like a billion dollars over three years. Whatever it is, it it, it still allows Google to figure out how much money is doled out and who it's doled out to and how it's doled out, right? The whole point of what Australia is trying to do is to drive a wedge in that and disjoint it and And provide some level of separation between tech monopoly content, social media platform and uh, media revenue. and And clearly, that linkage is a key reason why the media is just so bad these days and untrustworthy. Um, and that's not a partisan you know it's not a partisan thing. On both sides, uh, people just don't trust the news anymore. We you know we talked about that with Tim Kendall, and uh, there's a bunch of data on that supporting that. so Um, Anyway, what is Google's response to all of this? Google threatens to leave Australia. And I think rightly so, this article points out, but its poker face is slipping. You know, Sundar is just weak. He really is not very good at playing this game. You can kind of just see right through him. What's Google going to do? They're going to literally leave all of Australia and not get one iota of search revenue in Australia. They're just going to seed the market. Hey. Someone else, Microsoft, here you go. I don't know how the Australians would feel about um, Baidu coming in, but okay, Baidu come in, Bing come in, whoever else, right? Google's just going to cede that market share because the, the government is going to force them to pay a few billion dollars to the media companies and they're not going to have control over it. I mean, the best thing that Google could do is to stand its ground and actually go through with this. I don't think they will. I don't think Sundar and the team has the gumption to see this through. And I think Australia, hopefully, Australia calls their bluff and we see what happens. I do think that the direction Australia is going here is, A, it's entirely appropriate and it's probably one of the best. It's probably one of the best in terms of trying to help uh, you know, traditional media regain some of its integrity. This is probably the best plan I've seen to date. You know what Poland is doing is also equally um, a as just as good of a plan. That's a little bit different. That's more on the censorship side and less about the fake news side. But I actually, I think in terms of solving the fake fake news problems, this could be one of the best potential solutions. And we'll see. The stuff in France is very different. Um, that's just more of a pure tax. That's France. The country wants to make money off of the tech monopolies. This is different. This is about helping media regain its integrity and driving a wedge between this kind of co-opted nature between uh, Google, Facebook, content, social media platform monopolies and, and their algorithms and, and media and what the media feeds into the beast. We'll see. I think if Australia sticks to its guns, I think Google capitulates and compromises. Uh, What they should do, though, is they should go scorched earth on Australia and they should leave uh, and then see what happens and see where the chip falls, because the reason why they should do that is because um, once you see a chink in the armor, you can sure as hell bet you that the EU nations are going to go after a similar media payment structure, and you know now the recipe will be copied and repeated. So um, similar to the unions, right? Union crops up, you kill the store. Australia crops up, you exit, right? You close the store. Tried and true strategy. Worked so far for unions, and stamping out unions is kind of the same game, but just a little bit bigger. Just a country called Australia, or actually a continent called Australia. But at a very high level, I think it's actually the right strategy. Don't think Sundar has the ability to uh, to, to see it through. But hey, maybe I'm wrong. Let's see what you got. It let's see what you got, Sundar. Um, okay. Next topic. More smoke and mirrors today. Um, Where's this one? This one's this one's gold. This one's gold. Twitter locks out Chinese embassy. The U.S. Chinese embassy over their post on the Uyghurs. Uh, if you don't know who the Uyghurs are, they are now probably at least the second, if not third, race that the Chinese have uh, waged genocide on. U.S. Secretary of State you know uh uh, pompeo on maybe the second to last day officially labeled china as as having genocide let me let me fact check that gang uh yep hey i got it right mike pompeo accused china of committing genocide an international crime and biden's team agrees and they are a thousand percent correct and frankly they shouldn't stop there um They've done the same thing in Tibet with all of the kind of forced upheaval, they call it like re-education camps, um, where they literally take hundreds of thousands of people. I mean, who knows? It could. It's at least hundreds of thousands of people. It could very well be millions. We don't know. Um, but it's a bunch of people. Let's just say it's millions. Why give them the benefit of the doubt? Because there's no transparency. There's a bunch of lies. So reeducation camps. It's basically, I don't know. I, I don't want to. I don't want to call it the thing. You know, the other kind of camp. But it's a really bad camps. And um, there's physical abuse, mental abuse, um, starvation, manual labor uh it's not good okay and you got uh, hundreds of thousands of people who have died or who have um you know lasting mental issues uh and just and just trauma uh and it's just so horrible and it's been documented for years the new york times has has done uh you know uh, um uh, front page they had the satellite photos of this coming in uh, of all these camps, and it's huge, massive camps. So, anyway, this is nothing new for China. This is about the Uyghurs. The Uyghurs are a form of Muslim Chinese. And what you'll find is that totalitarian dictatorships, communist, socialist dictatorships, they don't like religion. You know, they don't like a power structure or a belief system, which is anything but what the party says, right? So um, that means if you're a follower of Islam or any religion for that matter, that's no bueno. So they basically branded billions of Chinese Uyghurs, um, kind of like just saying they're radical extremists. We've heard that one before. And they need to go to re-education camps. Anyway, how did I get on this topic? Um, <laughs> the reason I got on the topic is because Twitter, locked down. Uh, the U.S. Chinese Embassy Twitter account, because they tweeted out the tweet which said Uyghur women were no longer baby-making machines. Was originally shared on January 7th, but wasn't removed by Twitter until more than 24 hours later. Has been replaced by a label saying this tweet is no longer available. Until the Chinese U.S. Embassy deletes the tweet, then their account can be unlocked and they can continue to operate. We have taken action on this tweet for violating our policy against dehumanization. Uh, dehumanization of a group of people based on their religion, caste, age, disability, serious disease, national origin, race, or ethnicity is not allowed on Twitter. Here's the thing, gang. This was also the wrong move. This is just smoke and mirrors. This is Twitter trying to take heat off of itself. And now what you've seen is the box is wide open. Pandora's box is wide open. And this dragon is everywhere. And you can't tame the beast once you open the box. And that means that the censorship stick, the thought police that are Twitter, and they literally have you know fancy titles, uh, trust and safety, and all these things. I mean, go read the book 1984. You're, it's literally like you're reading the book in 2020 and 2021. Actually, it started in 2019. We've been covering this for years. Okay, ever since the show came out back to July 2019 when we launched the show, we have been documenting uh, Twitter and Facebook and Google and Amazon um, extreme censorship practices. Uh, Apple's doing it too. Uh, Microsoft's kind of stayed a little bit out of the foray. They, they, you know, they, they clashed with this consumer arena back in the 90s and bore the brunt of that, and kind of have learned to and stay afield of this, but this action is also incorrect. They shouldn't have locked these guys out, the the Chinese. Let them say what they want to say, okay? We know what the Chinese are doing. People know. People are smart, okay? You know, it's like Twitter thinks that we're all sheep. And because the Chinese tweet this thing, which is clearly inappropriate, that, oh, well, you know, uh, You can't see that because bad things will happen. Violence will be incited, right? There will be irreparable repercussions if Twitter leaves this tweet up. Let the tweet stay up. It's inappropriate. China's clearly in the wrong. People can make up their own opinion. That is the fundamental thing at issue with how uh, the tech monopolies, not including Twitter, but Twitter's also in the wrong. They're just not a monopoly. They're a baby company. Um, 30 million active users, if they're lucky, in the United States. That number is going down. I can't wait for the earnings release. It's an oxymoron. You can't properly censor this kind of behavior, okay? They have now made the the subject matter of what falls into the box of the thought police so broad um, that you're just never able to wield it in a neutral fashion, okay? Um, they have gone so overboard on censorship, and it's not just Twitter, that now, you know, they're doing this with the Chinese. They're trying to save face, and they're just the cat's out of the bag. Pandora's box is open. The censorship is only going to continue, it's only going to get worse. And it was a very sad day, as I've talked about, you know, uh, as, uh, I, as signified by, by Atlas over here. It was a very sad day, a very sad you know really week um that really was that seminal moment where we saw this departure uh i mean it it had been leading up to this for for years and months and quarters, and we'd been covering it on the show but you know you you really are seeing now a um decidedly different trajectory uh for you know for the state of these social media and uh and content platforms so to that end, you know I've spoken about how private enterprise can can be a legitimate competitor to Twitter tech monopolies. No, they remain unchanged. You can't pierce that armor uh, just through private competition. Uh, you know, hence why they are a monopoly. But another company, you know, we've covered the five oxymorons. We've covered uh, Telegram. Um, there's another one here which is getting some newsworthiness that one is called Clubhouse. So Clubhouse, it's kind of like exclusive and invite only. And it is um, now uh, apparently has a unicorn valuation. It's essentially audio. It's kind of like podcasts. You have rooms. You can come into the rooms. They've done a very good job gating access. So it's a classic kind of platform strategy to, to gain audience. Apparently, they had a hundred million dollar valuation when they had 1500 users. And now they've got, I guess, Andreessen Horowitz in the running uh, that's interested in getting in on this. And so, you know, clearly what you're seeing is the VCs see what, what's going on. A lot of these content and social media platforms have been attempted to be branded as being too inappropriate, that they don't censor enough of their community, and therefore, they support extremist content. All of that is an attempt to keep the VC money away, right? To 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 strangle and starve the uh, up and coming content platform competitors from getting what they need—capital. They've got the scale. They've got the usage. Telegram is just struggling to pay their server bills, which are now over two hundred million dollars a year. Telegram's trying to do a raise just to pay the server bills. But if Telegram doesn't go spend at least 100 million dollars on content censorship, they're going to be branded as being a horrible irresponsible communication platform. Don't believe it, okay? Um, so anyway, Clubhouse seems to have kind of it's so new that you know, I think it's tough for the media to brand it as not doing enough censorship here, but so so the VC money will they see what's going on. They see the insane um, the diaspora, this exodus away from the Twitters of the world and even the large tech monopolies. But again, they're so sticky and they're so entrenched. It's going to be very hard to truly decouple away from the large tech monopolies. Any of these platforms that can that can kind of still be have, have a positive light within the media and not allow the tech monopolies and the media to poo-poo them too much from a PR standpoint every one of these content platforms is going to run into their, um, you know, is going to have issues. Every platform, every growing platform has issues. Uh, you know, content is one of the issues, right? Just like servers operating properly. Okay. I mean, it's just, you have issues. That's, that's what it's called. It's building a business. It's like, basically, you're building a business. Oh, great. You're going to have issues. How big are the issues? Are the issues going to burn your whole house down? Or is it a small little fire and you can put that out and keep going, and keep the scale going, right? It's kind of the whole thing of building a business. How big are the fires? And can you stay focused and keep scaling? Anyway, eventually Clubhouse will run into the same stuff. Um, but right now they haven't. And they've been able to kind of sidestep it probably because they're just, you know, they're much younger. But now they've got apparently a unicorn valuation. They've confirmed they raised the Series B from Andreessen Horowitz. Oh, and you got some big names in here. you got Naval from Angelus. Uh, house party in here, 800,000 daily active users. I mean, that's peanuts um, compared to the size of the exodus that is uh, leaving from these, you know, from uh, maybe I should just call them the the thought police content, social media platforms. So uh, Clubhouse put that one on the radar. We are this is a trend that we are going to continue to see. And then sure enough, I'm sure now in the next month or two or three, we're gonna see the media say, Oh, well, Clubhouse, you know, where's your trust and safety team? Are you spending fifty million dollars on this yet? Are you are you kicking people off yet? Are you taking down content that doesn't fit with the narrative? Um, and we'll see how they respond when they get to that point. But uh so far they've been able to to dodge that, which is only yeah, uh, probably for the most part to their own benefit. All right. Last topic finishing here with, you know, really an ode to, um, this really great individual, uh, and this individual name, which I'm going to get right is Mark Laurie. I feel like I'd mispronounced the guy's name too many times, but he is the, he co-founded, uh, jet.com. Oh yeah. I guess he's a founder of jet.com. And, um, let me back up a little bit on, on Mark's story and, and why the guy is just so amazing. His business before Jet was a company called Diapers.com. And the reason why Mark developed a burning hatred for Jeff Bezos is that uh, when Diapers.com was considering getting acquired, what Amazon did, they were in negotiations with Diaper Diapers.com. And what they did is they scrubbed diapers.com website for all their SKUs, and then they matched those to Amazon's SKUs. <laughs> and then they like cut the price of Amazon's products in half. Right? What did that do to diapers.com? It obliterated uh, their numbers, right? So, in order to, for diapers.com to stay competitive and not hemorrhage users, Amazon. They had to match this stuff or give away huge discounts or promos or whatever it is, right? Diapers.com didn't have as much money as Amazon did. And um, they basically had a ruthless, hostile takeover of Diapers.com because then Diapers.com was hemorrhaging money. They didn't have the reserves that Amazon did while in conversation with Amazon about getting acquired by Amazon. So then what did Amazon do? Well, they offered them a lot less money to buy them. And ended up buying them, I think, for yeah five hundred fifty million dollars, and that was in twenty eleven some real dirty stuff, okay, um real dirty stuff, and Jeff was absolutely quarterbacking that, okay <laughs> i mean <laughs> you can't you can't make this stuff up um kind of makes you find some humor in the fact that um uh the saudi prince hacked jeff do you know the story of of how jeff bezos's phone was hacked so um and and how it was learned that jeff bezos was having an affair okay small little tangent um jeff bezos was whatsapping with the like crown prince of saudi arabia i don't know if this was before after the whole khashoggi thing washington post situation but um, Crown Prince was not happy about the Washington Post poking around into Saudi Arabia. Crown Prince took it personally, apparently, and sent Jeff this video. And I don't know what Jeff's exact settings were. You know, on WhatsApp, we normally, I don't know if they've changed these settings since then, but it would automatically download the video. Um, maybe Jeff clicked the video and then it downloaded, but whatever it is, Crown Prince sent him a photo or a video, one of the two, some form of media. Jeff. Downloaded it to his device, either automatically or he clicked it and watched it. Then it downloaded to his device. And in that piece of media was a virus. And then from that day on, apparently, when Jeff's uh, hacker team, you know, security team did the the retrospective uh, on his phone, they said, oh, you know, on that day, right when the crown prince, crown prince of Saudi Arabia, texted Jeff, WhatsApp Jeff, that thing, then Jeff's phone started sending all this data to this server. Hmm. So they pinpointed it to the crown prince, is then hacked Jeff's phone. That's how they got all of his messages. Then they poured through his messages, and that's how they found out that he was having an affair. And then I don't know if they tried to blackmail him or something, or I don't know what happened from there. Then they kind of gave it to some media, you know, news group. So it wasn't coming from Saudi Arabia, but but it was actually Saudi Arabia, I think, then gave that information to some media organization. And then that blackmailed Jeff Bezos and then it came out and he was having an affair. Rest is all history. Anyway, small little tangent, thought you'd enjoy that story. Um, so uh, diapers.com, back to this, ruthless Jeff in there, skewering Mark. Guy still made good money, but, you know, that's really dirty uh, games there skewers the guy. And then Mark swears to try to be the undoing of Jeff Bezos. And then what does he do? He starts jet.com, raises a bunch of money for jet.com, hundreds of millions of dollars before the thing even launches, uh, gets acquired in 2016 by Walmart, teams up with Doug McMillan and, and the team over there. We have been super bullish on Walmart being able to be the number two marketplace behind Amazon, they are basically there, um, and I think you know they have a very bright future in front of them because of what Mark and many other team members there have done. There have been failures, and and in this interview here that Mark did with Recode, you know, he talks about some of those. Like for example, they were buying up all these uh, kind of digital direct to consumer brands like Bonobos, Modcloth, Eloquii. Those were not platform marketplace companies, right? These were kind of like best in brand, D2C, but had good um, digital uh, e-commerce capability for products that consumers liked. And so he's buying up a number of those. You know, he talks about those not panning out the way he had hoped. The good news though, is he got a really strong team of lieutenants underneath him. Uh, Other, you know, digital savvy e-commerce product entrepreneurs uh, that then were brought into Walmart and could help kind of round out the team that Mark had underneath him. So yeah, you know, it didn't pan out the way, but he still got some really good talent, kind of expensive, you know, but these weren't massive. These were like tens of millions of dollars worth of acquisition size type of deals. You know, these weren't mega, mega, mega deals. So they've sold off cloth and have kept kind of some of the other things here, but um, so that didn't work out. You know, that was maybe, you know, low nine figures of money kind of not panned out. Um, as as planned another thing they were doing was uh this jet black service which he talks about this concierge service um one of the co-founders of rent the runway uh she went on to go run this after you know after exiting rent the runway rent the runway also not a platform business but uh really good with you know literally um dress rentals and digital business model and Um, You know, built a very strong brand around that business. So she came to run that. That also didn't work out too well. Um, But look, I mean, I think the the best part about this article was actually the end of it and what Mark says Walmart needs to do to continue to be successful. Uh, What does a 58-year-old retail titan need to do to close the gap with Amazon? He says, simple, to continue to be bold and not be a follower. Uh, The fast follower strategy is not going to get it done right? So you got to take risks. You got to take smart calculated risks. But if you continue to just try and follow what Amazon's doing, you're not going to beat them. And you're not going to really gain on them. Um, for example, what Walmart did, which also was another point of contention inside of Walmart between who gets the credit mark or you know the, the more traditional kind of US team, US kind of uh, uh, business team, was integrating their grocery pickup and store curbside pickup for grocery was really the one of one of if not the biggest digital catalysts of app downloads and digital growth for walmart not a marketplace thing at all it's really just taking their physical infrastructure which is groceries putting that into a nice app letting you order it and pick it up at the curb but that really helped jump start right how do you take all the You know, there's what, uh, 95% or more of the population in the US is within 10 miles of a Walmart, whatever that stat is. How do you take all the analog demand that Walmart has, which is huge, and start to translate that to digital demand, right? You need digital demand if you're ever going to get digital supply and really do marketplace uh, in any real fashion, right? You can't just go get a bunch of sellers if there's no demand to entice the sellers. Chicken and egg problem, right? Right. Happens all the time. So it was really that mechanism, which I would call that a a linear hook, right? It's um, a linear strategy, but it's a hook and it gets that demand started. It gets that flywheel moving. And then you can go build out supply aggressively, which is what uh, Walmart has also been focusing. We've covered that on the show many, many times. How First nine months in 2019, they added 10 million SKUs. And 9.5 million of those were from third-party sellers. Only half a million were from SKUs that I mean, Walmart was actually buying and reselling as a first-party seller, right? So you got to do a lot of these things. There's a lot of moving parts to make this work, but you need the right people uh, at the top and then on down. And you got to be able to take risks and be bold. And uh, Mark really was an amazing catalyst at... At Walmart to help that come about, uh, a really great lieutenant to Doug, CEO of Walmart, and he'll be missed. But um, he wants to go and 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 build a city. Yep, literally, he wants to go build a city. Uh, so here, imagine a city with the vibrancy, diversity, and culture of New York City, maybe pre pre COVID, combined with the efficiency, safety, and innovation of Tokyo. Uh, Tokyo is pretty sweet and the sustainability governance and social services of Sweden sounds like sounds like I don't know I would say to me kind of sounds like Galt's Gulch maybe some people would not agree with that but this will be our new city this is going to be a lifelong project it's the thing I'm most passionate about the guy is so passionate about it that he left 150 million dollars on the table by leaving his contract early with Walmart. He left like nine months early and basically sacrificed 150 million dollars' worth of shares. Uh, that's how passionate he feels about, yeah, he needed to stay until September of 2021, nine months, and he couldn't wait eight months and get 150 million dollars. That means the guy was getting 20, roughly 20 million dollars a month just to stick around. Uh, And he said, you know, I really want to get going on this new city thing. I'm good on 150. Let's rock and roll. Let's go new city. Yeah. Yeah. This guy's, this guy's a G. Mark will be missed. I'm sure he'll do fantastic things with whatever he sets his mind to. Uh, It really is amazing what, what he helped really help catalyze at Walmart. And, and really, I think set a blueprint for how retailers uh, and just traditional incumbents and enterprises in general um can can leverage uh and go after new platform business models use MA as an accelerant to make that happen and um and then leverage the competitive advantages that the incumbent that the enterprise has right how do you bring that all together i mean that is literally what applico does so when i put it lightly uh, that mark is kind of a messiah in the space uh, you know it's it's hard for me to um for me to e- emphasize enough how amazing this guy is how much of an impact he's had personally on my thinking um and uh on 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 just so many things so um uh you know the show bids you adieu mark but but not goodbye and we look forward to to seeing what you're going to do with this new city and where it's going to be uh, to start a really great, phenomenal run. But I think he's also built a really good team around him that he's not leaving Walmart in a lurch. And that's probably the biggest thing. You know, that's what they say about kind of the CEO's biggest job. I don't really agree with this entirely, but it is a very important job. Maybe not the biggest, very important job is uh, secession planning. And so who's going to take over the reins after you leave? And if you make an organization that is 100% dependent upon you being there, well, you actually really didn't do that good of a job. So don't think Mark has done that. Don't think that's kind of culture and team that he's built. You want to know who has done that? Jack Dorsey has done that. He has made himself uh, indispensable and built a team of JV players. Very inappropriate. And it shows in how he manages the company and presents himself. So anyway, Mark, complete opposite in terms of character and leadership and just uh, professionalism. Excited to see what he does next. That's it for us today on Winner Take All. Thank you very much for joining us, and I will talk to you soon.